My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. Monitored and recorded. To accept this call, say or dial 5 now. Thank you for using Global Tell Link. Our guest today is James Arthur Willock. He was raised in Sacramento, California. James was sentenced to 34 years to life at the age of 19. He has now been incarcerated for 28 years and is 46 years old. He will be going to the Board of Parole hearings in March of 2020 for his second hearing. At his first hearing, he was denied parole for five years. James is a positive pro-social leader that works every single day to help others, serve others, and affect change in the lives of those he's incarcerated with at Solid Ass State Prison and beyond. One of James' leadership maxims is, life is about moments and relationships. Each moment is an opportunity to build relationships. James has certainly built some strong relationships while incarcerated. It wasn't always that way, but today James loves people and strives to be the best man he can be. The person he is most inspired by is Anne Frank and Nelson Mandela. While incarcerated, James earned his GED. He's currently enrolled in college. And beyond that, he is a poet, life coach, a peer mentor in the Long-Term Offender Mentor Program at Solidad's Correctional Training Facility, Facility C. His story is told in chapter four of the book, Men Built for Others. He is still incarcerated, but I want our audience to know that he is one of the freest men that I've ever met. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be here. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, it's a, it's a great opportunity to hear your voice also and to be able to share these stories. Yeah, James, it's an honor and a blessing to be able to talk to you. You're actually our first guest, and we're grateful that you're willing to share your story with us. We believe that your story will have a profound impact on our subscribers, as the majority of our subscribers have a loved one who is incarcerated. So, James, I just yeah. want to, we're just going to have a conversation, and I just want to, first thing I want to start off with is just, Tee you up, James, to share your story and just ask you to take us back and tell us how it all started for you. Well, I was born in 1972 in Sacramento, California, to a single mother. I have an older sister and a younger brother. We're all 11 months apart. My brother grew up with his father, and me and my sister grew up mainly with my mother early on in our in our life with her bouncing around from relatives and my grandmother. Eventually, I was placed in a group home. I was made a ward of the state. And that's when my story basically took a severe turn. So early on early on in life, I had some positive role models in my life. My, my grandmother would do everything she could to support me and my sister, our other cousins, even my mother. Even when my mother wasn't living with us, my grandmother would let her come, you know, and stay either around the house or in the house. She also took care of our numerous other grandchildren and her own children on top of that. My sister's father, Al Folgem, he was a big part. He used to come over, pick me up on the weekends and just try to be that male father figure for me as my father was incarcerated um, most of my life. Later on, Around when I was eight years old, 
I realized, you know, that I was lonely for my father. Me and my mother and my sister, we had an apartment together. It was the first time I could remember that we had our apartment together, and life to me was great. I was just being a kid, getting toys for Christmas and enjoying life, and we took a trip to Mill Creek State Prison for a conjugal visit. And that was like some of the first memories I had of spending time with my father. So we spent two days up there just enjoying time together. And he made a lot of promises to me when he got out. He was going to be our savior. He was going to be there for me, the father that I longed for. And so when he got out, I was really looking forward to all that. However, when he got out, him and my mother started doing drugs again. Things went real bad. He started teaching me how to steal. He would take me to stores and show me how to steal fake guns that he was using for robberies. And I was around seven or eight years old at this time. And one night I remember waking up to my mother's cries and screams. And when I ran into her room, she was on the bed. He was straddling her and she was bloody. And she was telling me to go call for help, call my grandfather. And I didn't know his number at the time. And my father was just telling me to get out the room. It had nothing to do with me. And I, I was crying. I was scared. I was confused. And so I knew to go dial zero and you could get help. That's what they had taught me in school. So I ran downstairs and I dialed zero. And through my sobs, I told the operator what was going on and why I needed my grandfather. Well, she sent some help and it wasn't my grandfather. She sent the police. The police came and they escorted my father out. And as he was leaving, he like had a disappointed look on his face. And so I was like ashamed at that moment. This was a man I looked up to, a man I loved and admired and wanted in my life. And now he was disappointed in me. To my surprise, my mother was disappointed in me also and let me know verbally that how disappointed she was. And she called my grandparents and she told them and they were disappointed. And to this day, I don't know if it's the reason or not, but we don't have a relationship. And I was their first grandchild and uh, they don't have a relationship with a relationship with me until this day. So that, that affected me uh, uh, greatly. That and many other things that come after that. As far as my mother getting into fights, stabbing a lady, going to prison, her telling me to basically not accept a loss when I go out there and I come in bloody. She's telling me, hey, men don't cry. Get out there, pick something up and handle your business. So at that moment, I didn't know it at the time, but I started forming a belief system. And that's what I reinforced throughout my young life, that belief system that you don't get people involved in your business, that you handle your business, whatever it takes. And I believed in that way I was getting the love and support of my family that I desired. So that's what I mean by when I say it, 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 that's where my life really took a turn. These are the stories that a lot of people don't hear behind the scenes. Sometimes people think that people just wake up and go and commit crime, but being taught at a young age to commit robberies, uh, encouraged to go and commit robberies and to steal, experiencing your, your parents in a domestic disputes, domestic violence and abuse, being taught values and principles that are contrary, I know, to the values and principles that you hold to today. So what age is this? Were you exposed to this? Did you start seeing this at? Yeah, like I was saying, it was around seven or eight years old is when I first now become conscious of it. Now, I don't know if I was exposed to it before that. I'm pretty sure I was, 
because my mother and father didn't just change overnight and became the people they were. They were alcoholics and and drug addicts before that. But when I became conscious of it, I was seven or eight years old. And like I said, it was this main incident that really stood out to me where I was really aware of what was going on and that they were criminals and this is what they were teaching me to do these things. What was that main incident? The main incident was was actually when my father took me to the store and he literally taught me how to uh, steal, not encourage me, not like look the other way, but actually lifted my shirt up, took a, a fake gun, put it inside my pants, pulled my shirt down and said, this is how you do it. And he was happy when we got out the store and we had him. He, you know, he was he was happy. I was his son. I got to ride in the front seat with him. So to me, like, yeah, this is how you do it. Then again, when I later on in that same week, when I wind up calling Zero to get help and the police came and that disappointment look for calling people outside to help you, that reinforced that belief that, like, look, you to do criminal things. This is how you accept it. This is this is the life you need to, to live if you want to be happy in this house. Al, at that time, was coming over on the weekends and picking me up and taking me places. And he was telling me, you know, hard work pays off. This is how you get the things that he had in life. He had bought a house. He had, you know, a brand new car. He, he, was, he had a good life. And he was telling me, this is how you get it, hard work and, and dedication and, and sacrifice and being a, a man of your word. And I wanted to like listen to him as a child and say, yeah, this is great. But I also had that natural desire in me to want to please my father and my mother. And so they were telling me the total opposite. And so, again, I was like so confused as a child and I just wanted to please them that I was I was torn and I chose to go that that route as far as criminality. And who was Al to you again? Al was my sister and my brother's father. My my mother, she had my sister by Al. Then she left him, went to my father, had me. Then she left my father and went back to him and had my brother. Mm-hmm. And so he was their their biological father, and but to me he was he was like my only real male positive role model in my life at that time, and he continued to be that um, throughout his life until he passed away. So would you say that these types of um, experiences or beliefs, and I know that in the board, I, I think sometimes they talked about them as you know, contributing factors or causative factors. You know, um, I know that you're preparing for the board on March 5th for the second go around. And um, so you're hearing these things, you're seeing these things, you're being told these things. And uh, I can't imagine, I mean, what it's like to be seven or eight years old, to being being affirmed for criminality. So at some point, how do they impact you going to school? You're in grade school and junior high. So how does it end up leading to uh, receiving 34 years to life at the age of 19? The first thing that comes to my mind when we talk about, you know, how those events uh, affected me, like even just going to school or whatever, I didn't see any value in in school because to be the best criminal, they weren't in schools. To be the best criminal and to be like, well, my mother 
and then would like sit around all day and they would drink beer and they would hang out. That's I wanted to be around them. You know, that's when I got to be around them. So I, I didn't care about school. I didn't want to go to school. And so when I go, when I went to school, I would act out, not knowing at the time that my reason for acting out was basically so they would tell me, you know, stop coming. A couple of times I remember my mother coming up to the school, almost getting in a fight with teachers because they had either said something to me or did something to me that she deemed, you know, was inappropriate. And so that like reinforced forced it. Like when I get into trouble, she's going to come up here. She's going to have my back. So I, I would find myself doing it even more. And again, uh, eventually when my mother had went to jail for uh, stabbing, stabbing a, a lady, I was, at the time I was living with some friends. She went to jail and I, I started living with some friends because I didn't like staying at my grandmother's house because it was just too much going on. Again, I was looking for love. So I had two friends that stayed around the corner and their mother let me stay there over the summer. It was summertime. And I, and I remember like being there and then one day my mother had got out on bail or whatever, or I, I don't know which. And uh, she was waiting to get sentenced. And then when she got, she, she got, she was, fixing to get sentenced and so she knew she was going to go do some time in prison so they came and got me and moved me to my to her friend's house because they had this whole thing set up where they could still get a check or whatever for me some welfare some food stamps and so they moved me across town to her friend's house so i started school there I mean, I didn't want to go. I loved it where I was. Uh, it was a lady named May, and she was she was taking care of me. She was like a mother figure to me, so it, it was great for me. So when they moved me to, to my mother's friend's house, me and my sister, then eventually, like about a month later, after I had started school, they decided, hey, we can't get the check over here. Now you have to go live back with your grandmother. So then I had to go back with my grandmother, and she was living at the time with a and one of my aunt and uncles and all the cousins. And so I just started just hanging out, staying gone. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to school so much so that they put out a warrant and they made my grandmother go to truancy court with me. And so that's, I believe all that was a, a product of how I was relating to what was going on in those events. And that's how it affected my schooling. <laughs> I was in the sixth grade when all this was going on because um, I remember what school I was going to. And so I wind up after the truancy court, I wind up going back and finishing it up and then going into junior high. And when junior high came, that's when like gang banging was really around. And so I had decided to be a gang member at that time. And I started hanging out with the guys, you know, that I was close to around the neighborhood that were going through some of the same things I was going through. Their mothers were drug addicts and whatnot. So we would just hang around and we said we would have each other's back and protect each other. We would commit crimes and whatnot. You know, so, yeah, we, we, we formed our own gang. My father was still in prison. He, he had, like I said, when he came out that first time, he wound up going back to prison. Like, not too long after this incident, I told you, they didn't take him to jail for the domestic abuse, the violence that night when I called the zero and the operator sent the police, 
they had different laws back then for domestic um, violence. And so my mother said, oh, no, it's all good. It's okay, whatever. And so they wind up not violating him or anything and letting him go. And so he just continued to do robberies and stuff. And then that's why he wound up going back to prison. And so he was already back in prison. Again, my mother now, she's in prison. And so I'm just out there with these beliefs now, these criminal beliefs, that this is how you survive and this is how you, you get people's love. And so... And I was by my by myself because my grandmother had so much going on where she was taking care of all these grandkids. It's like, well, I go and come as I want, and no one's like, hey, what are you doing? Where are you going? Are you going to school today? No, I'm not going. Okay, and we would move on. And so I was just running amok, and this was in the sixth grade. So by sixth grade, both of your parents are doing prison sentence. You're living with your grandma as a house full of chaos. Yes. Oh. Yes, and, uh, so, uh, sixth grade, is that when you began to get involved with gangs? And what gangs were you involved with? Yeah, so right around that time, going from sixth to the seventh, uh, I say the seventh to junior high school, uh, I started um, becoming a gang member. I was already a criminal, and I was hanging around guys, and we were, like, banded together, and we lived in a... It was a majority. I, I grew up in a neighborhood in, in Sacramento called Del Paso Heights. At that time, they had a nickname for Del Paso Heights. It was called the deepest part of hell. And, like, it was a lot of crime, a lot of violence. And it was predominantly 99% of blood area. And so because me and the couple of guys I was, I was running around with and being criminals, we didn't fit in. We didn't think we fell in. We said, hey, you know what? We're going to be Crips. We're against everybody. So we formed our own Crip gang in the middle of a blood neighborhood. That's crazy. Sixth and seventh grade. Yes. <laughs> when 99% of everyone else is doing the opposite. Exactly. And, and it, it's, the, it's the, that's how I saw the world. Everybody's telling me to be responsible when I go to school, when, you know, I'm involved on the weekends with Al and, and the different people. They're telling me how to be responsible to keep your word. And then when I go home to that one percentage, which is my mother and my father and the, and the people they're hanging around, it's the total opposite. So that's how I just started doing the world. Everything everybody else is doing, I'm going to do the opposite. And this is this is how I'm going to survive. And this is how I'm going to be accepted. So every, every once in a while, he would, he would come through, and my sister wasn't even living there at the time, so he would come through and find me sometimes, you know, in the streets, hanging out or whatever, and he was like, hey, come on, get in, you know, I would get in his car, he would take me, give me something to eat, you know, ask me how I'm doing, maybe take me to go play some video games or shoot some pool or just different things like that, he, he, would, he would try, but Mainly it was like, you know, on the weekends, maybe for a day, a couple of hours, and then he would drop me back off. The state had already, or the county had already took notice in me because I had to go to truancy court. So they had a file on me already. And so when I went to, started going to junior high and I started gangbanging and I was progressing in my, my, my criminal activity, I started getting arrested for hanging out, for riding around in stolen cars, for things like that. And so my grandma would have to come pick me up. So eventually the, the county decided, hey, look, this is not a good living environment for you. 
and we're going to um, make you a ward of the state and place you in a group home. So that's what they decided to do. So I, so I, the first group home I went to, it was like a group home in, in the south side of Sacramento. It was in a gang neighborhood. It was in a crip gang neighborhood. And so when I just go out in the side, I would see all this, the same stuff that was going on where I was before. So some of the counselors would even help us uh, buy drugs or buy alcohol. And so I just continued to escalate you know, into my gang activity. In fact, I was shot for my second time when I was in the group home. And they moved me to San Francisco, where I eventually ran ran away, scouted from the group home in San Francisco. And I was on the run when I went to the California Youth Authority for uh, receiving stolen property. As soon as I got out of the California Youth Authority, again, I was carrying guns. I committed my life crime when I was 19 years old. However... I was already in the mindset, in the belief system, where any day I could have committed a life crime. Right. Uh, I was carrying guns on a daily basis. I was looking for trouble. I was in a blood neighborhood being a crib. So it was the possibilities were there. And so How did happen you got shot? So I, early on, I had got shot. I, I, I skipped uh, some of this in, in the story. So I've been, I was shot eventually three times. The first time I was shot, me and my friend were walking by a liquor store, known blood liquor store, and we were up there, like, trying to basically uh, provoke them. And so they pulled out guns, and they started shooting at us, and I was shot in the leg. And so I was around probably around 16. No, I was around 15 at this time. Later on, I was in the group home, and we were going to... Again, Del Paso Heights, I'm wearing all blue, and some guys come up, they pull out the gun, they stick it to my stomach, and they pull the trigger. Uh, they they pull it in, they put it to my, my, my stomach, and they pull the trigger. So it, it went one side and out the other side. So that, that time I got shot, and then I got shot again on my life crime. Wow. Um, when, when, I, when I committed my murder, it was a shootout, and I was shot. That was the lifestyle I, w- I was living at that moment, where that was natural. And so what led up to my life crime, I believe, is the beliefs I started forming way back when, my, when, my, when I saw my father beating my mother that night, and I called the police. And, well, I didn't call the police. I called Zero to ask for help, and they sent the police. And so since everybody was mad at me, I, formed, I started forming a belief right then that, like, you don't get people outside of your business into your business. And so whatever happened, you handle it yourself. And so the night that I was at this party and someone pulled a gun on me, I was unwilling to go get help. I was unwilling to go anywhere else. So I decided that I'm going to get a gun and I'm going to handle it myself. And so I engaged these guys in a shootout and I murdered a man. Anytime something happened, to me it was not an option to call the police. To me, it wasn't an option to dial zero ever again in my life. So anytime something happened, I had to deal with it. I had to take it upon myself, even if it was putting my my life at risk, even if my life was at risk. So that's why I continue to put myself in those type of situations, like you said, where I was shot three times by the time I'm 19. And so leading up again to, to my life crime, 
when there's a there was a party going on and some guys approached me and it wasn't a gang related party or a gang related crime, but they didn't like me. I was like I was a guy that wasn't that likable. If you didn't know me and you didn't like I wasn't one of your friends, you you wouldn't like me. If if I would have died tonight, they would have said I got exactly what I got coming. That's that's my belief that they would have said that um, I, I wasn't trustworthy. I was a, a criminal. I was a belligerent. I was, you know, I was just evil in my mind. Evil. That that's the best way to, I, I believe that I could describe it. Even like if if my sister and my grandmother and and the people that love me would would probably not say that. Oh, he was misunderstood, or he was, you know, they would try to find allowances for that. But other people outside of that, they, they didn't love me. They they would think I was evil. They would think I was, you know, a criminal, a liar, dangerous, very dangerous. I carried a gun everywhere I went. And anytime I believed my life was in danger or I was provoked, that I was I was willing to shoot it. And um, so that's that's what people saw from me. And so the night of this party, when, when I go to this party and, he, and these guys approach me and they tell me to leave, and one of them put a gun and put it to my head and told me to leave. And I was like, hey, do what you're going to do. You know, go ahead and kill me. Because in my mind, you don't back down no matter what. And so I was like, hey, go ahead and kill me. But some guys intervened that, that knew me, and so nothing happened. And so I was allowed to leave. So I went and got my car. I got a ride to my car. My car was around the corner at my house. And I got in my car, and I always keep a gun in my car. I didn't have my gun on me. And so I drove back over there. And I got out the car. I had somebody with me, another gang member. And he stayed in the car, and I parked the car and got out, and I walked back up there, and they saw me coming. They knew I had a gun, so they started shooting. Um, one of them shot me in the leg, and I I shot my victim and killed my victim, um, Jim, Jimmy Hill. I believe that belief system that, look, this guy put a gun to my head. He was older than me. He was 30-something years old. And in my mind, look, look, I don't go for help. I don't get people in, in my business. I don't go to his homeboys and try to talk to them because that's putting people in my business. I handle was he my the same one? on my own. Was huh? he the same one that put the gun to your head? Yes. Back then, did you justify it? Yes. Uh, I completely justified it. I, I, like I said, to me, they were older than me. They were bigger than me. They were, you know, they had done time in the prison, him and his friends. They had been to prison before. They were, you know, they were they were pretty swole guys. They lifted weights. Uh, they had weapons. I was by myself. I've always been a slim kind of guy, not weighing a lot. So to me, like, hey, you, you knew that you, you pull a gun, you don't use it, you got what you got coming. That's the belief I, I had at that time. And also... Like, again, in my mind at that time, remember when I tell you, I walked up and I did not shoot first. They shot first. So in my mind, that's self-defense, you know. That's that's the law. I didn't shoot first. And so to me, yeah, they got what they got coming. And uh, I think your next question was, how did I get arrested? Yeah, was it that night or a week from now, a week from then? No, what happened? No, it, 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 it was late the, the next day. I had got shot in my leg. I got back in my car and I drove off and I went to my girlfriend's house at the time and um, just 
went to sleep and I woke up, you know, they she was trying to stop the bleeding in my leg and whatnot. But it was you know, it was it was bleeding a little bit. And somebody came to the door, they had told me, Hey, look, I saw you your picture on the news, they're looking for you. And so I went to the South area to talk to my friend, an older guy who, who was my homeboy at the time, and, you know, asked him, like, what should I do? My leg was a little numb. They were, they were nervous for me. So they said, hey, look, we'll just go to the hospital, whatever. I went to, I wound up going to the hospital. They wound up coming and arresting me at the hospital. Now, at the, the night before, I knew that my mother was getting out of prison she had this, she would have went to prison again for a violation and she was getting out the next day. So the day I was in the hospital, she was out now at this time. And so she found out where I was through my friend who told her what hospital I went to. So she came down there. And so when the detectives came and they arrested me at the hospital, they allowed her to talk to me, give me a hug right there in front of them. Um, so that was the first time I had saw my mother. The day she got out of the prison was the day I was going in. Wow, that's um, that's unfathomable. Yeah, man, all I can think about right there is you know, uh, just her pain, your pain, all coming together, culminating in one 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 location. But this time the cops are there, and it looks like you're facing a long time. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and um. And at the time, I mean, you know, she was probably under the assumption, you know, because I was shot as well as me and my my criminal naivety, that it, it probably wouldn't be that long, you know, but it wind up now 28 years later, and I still haven't seen her. Wow. And are you in touch today? Yes. Yeah, so, well, I, I write her. She hasn't wrote, written me back. She just got out of prison. Um a few years ago, she's been living the house to house, um, state to state, trying to get herself together. And right now, she's currently living with my sister in Redding, California. And so I communicate with her through my sister. So in 28 years, you never had a visit with your mom? No. And um, and did you ever get a visit from your biological father as either? No. Um, I heard he was out of prison, but um, he made no attempt to contact me. My mother, one time when she was out, she told me she ran into him. He knew where I was, and that was the extent of that conversation. He, he never tried to contact me, and um, I have never tried to contact him. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Do you think that's common for guys in prison, uh, similar backgrounds, to uh, not have their parents in their life or to get a visit for a long time? Yes, for, for a couple of reasons. I believe it is common, but in my case, for instance, my mother is in and out of prison, so she's on parole, um, probation, you know, so that thing. Also, her beliefs, now that she's done time in prison, some people don't want to come back to prison, you know, so that, along with, at the time, I never really thought of her pain or her disappointment, because I'm thinking about myself, I'm thinking selfishly, and in my belief, you know, I'm doing everything she wants me to do, to get her love and affection. Now, thinking back on it, I don't believe any mother wants that for their child to be a, a criminal, even if that's the life they're le leading and the example they're setting. I don't believe they naturally want that. And so when their child goes to prison for murder with a life sentence, I believe there has to be 
some disappointment and, and some regret and some shame maybe um, for that parent. And so yeah, that sure. can also cause them not to want to reach out and, and touch them because it might just be too painful for them because they're not working on themselves, going to self-help groups and counseling like we are. For sure. So how soon after, before you're standing before a judge and getting sentenced to 34 years to life? So I was in the, I was in the county jail for a little over a year, maybe a year and a half at, at the max, pre-trial motions, usually for a murder. It, it, it takes a while. You don't go. It's, you know, it's not like a TV show where you go in 30 minutes and you know your fate. Um, they have a lot of motions, a lot of pre-trial motions. They decide what they want to charge you with, decide whose witnesses and everything. So both sides are ready. It's usually about a year and a half for a murder uh, trial to take place. I went to trial and I was convicted by a jury of first-degree murder. So it was like a year and a half. And what were your thoughts while you were in court being sentenced to 34 years to life at the age of 19? So when, again, like I had a certain belief system when I, when, before I committed my crime. And just because I committed my crime doesn't mean my belief system automatically changed. So I still so you're had saying that you didn't change? System. No. When I, when I was first arrested, no, I didn't automatically change. I know it probably does happen like that for some people, but it didn't happen like that for me. When I was arrested for my crime, I still saw myself as a victim. They shot me. They were older than me. They had what they got coming. I couldn't believe that they were charging me with first-degree murder. And then when they convicted me of first-degree murder, I couldn't believe it still. When the judge sentenced me, you know, I, 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 I had, it was very disrespectful. I called him a racist. I, I couldn't believe it because yeah, I saw myself as a victim. Look, I was raised in a gang environment by a mother who was on drugs, on alcohol, who a father was in and out of prison, but mainly in prison for all my life, who, who taught me how to steal and rob, who, who encouraged me, you know, to be violent. And when I do those things, now you're convicting me of first-degree murder. So in my mind, I, I couldn't believe it. I was a victim of the system. Did it come out that um, he was he was the one who had shot you first? And so it seems like it, it's so, a second degree murder, but yeah. So at, at, at the trial, they took before the trial, they took the bullet out of my leg. The bullet was still in my leg, so they took the bullet out when I was in the county jail, you know, for evidence. So it was known that I was shot, but because I wasn't arrested at the scene, the DA said I've been shot somewhere else. After I murdered uh, James Hill. There was like two or three other shootings in the neighborhood that they believed were in retaliation. So they said I could have been shot at one of those incidents. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.